I guess if you wouldn't mind putting on the first first slide there. Uh, so some of you may have seen the announcement, and I know I've been introduced, but my name's Kevin. Um, and I guess that, that's how I'm going to be talking to you all today, um, not necessarily from my professional uh, position, uh, but as an individual who happens to, you know, have that kind of uh, experience and, you know, shaped who I individually am. But uh, as I was kind of racking my brain exactly how I wanted to talk about today, and as anxiety-provoking as it was, I wanted to make sure that um, I talked just specifically from my own individual experience, so I wanted to make sure that I'm trying to separate those roles as clearly as I can. This is me. Not, not a psychologist, not as an instructor, but as me. So, um, one of the reasons why I agreed to do this <laughs> is because we're in the May, month of May. Uh, some of you have been hearing that uh, the month of May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, actually, I, I hate to say that I recently learned this. This was since 1949. Uh, we've been having the month of May being Mental Health Awareness Month. month and um, in case you weren't already aware, uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, is going with the theme of those with uh, mental illness, mental health conditions, whatever you want to call it, um, that those, I'll go ahead and say, of us uh, are more than enough, or more than that label, or more than that condition, or more than what the past has dictated that we are. Um, so one of the main ways to address mental health issues and to promote just a better society, <laughs> I guess, uh, that, that supports those who might be dealing with mental health issues is to promote awareness because that can, you know, be one of the most key ways that we make our society better is through awareness. It can help actually, you know, make systematic, systematic uh, and societal change. Um, and to do that, we need to address the mental health stigma around it. Stigma, one of the ideas behind it is that it's like referring to some kind of um, solid aspect of someone that, you know, individuals or, or, or people around an individual might think of someone as uh, having some sort of thing that's not desirable. That's kind of the, the, the essence of what, what stigma is kind of referring to. It's a very social thing. Okay, next slide. <laughs> so as we look at kind of the overall picture of what we're dealing with, because I, I don't want it to seem as though like my individual experience is like everyone else's, obviously not. Hopefully that's super obvious. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Um, there's so much work to be done, and it can be quite overwhelming for those of us who really want to make the world a better place, um, for those of us that actually kind of drives our mental health issues, <laughs> like myself. Um, and I want to make the world a better place, but it can feel so overwhelming. These are a few of the statistics. I'm not going to go through every single one listed here. 
Um, but uh, let's maybe just go with the first one. Yeah, so 22.8% of U.S. adults experienced mental illness in 2021. That's kind of recent. If you want to look at it as like a particular number, uh, one in five on average, right? Um, the rate of unemployment is higher among those adults who have mental illness, 7.4% compared to those who do not, 4.6. Those, like, those sound like small numbers, but when you multiply it time, like across the national population, those are not small at all. People with depression have 40% higher risk of developing physical health issues. And I, and I wanted to put this one in because honestly, there were like, there, there were scores of different things that I could put in. Um, but just to illustrate that these are not even things that just, you know, happen within the mind. What happens within the mind affects the body and vice versa. It's what we call in the research bidirectional relationships. That's kind of where we're at. It's understanding that there's bidirectional relationships with all of these different things. And among people in the United States under age 18, depressive disorders, did you know this? Um are the most common causes of hospitalizations. That's after excluding hospitalizations relating to pregnancy and birth. So once those are aside, depression is kind of a key thing. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this later, but um, you know, the, the, and that's been hitting a little bit closer to home, I think recently with uh, one, one, of my, one of my family members actually. Um, this will be one of the things that I'll ask to edit a little bit later. <laughs> um, next slide. But when we look more specifically at groups who may be having a harder time of it, uh, which I think is uh, appropriate to you know, recognize at least, annual prevalence of mental illness among those who are uh, uh, reporting being lesbian, gay, or bisexual, half. Half. That is a huge, huge percentage. I told you the average across everyone in the United States was one in five, 20% or so. This is half. Um, uh, what's interesting is I, I recognize that's not including those who uh, were in the transgender, non-binary uh, individual group. And those of us who've been paying attention to the mental health research know that folks who are within that particular group are at a pretty high risk of things that we really care about, like, for example, suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. And I guess I should have said a uh, content warning. I'm gonna be talking about mental health issues today, amongst, amongst them uh, suicidal ideation. About one in five US veterans experienced mental illness in 2020. They're constantly put in harm's way, and uh, there's, there's a lot that I could say about that, but I'm already, like, running up on time. Um, one in five, which honestly, I, I wonder if this is an underreporting, of people experiencing homelessness in the United States have serious mental health conditions. Moving on down, because, yeah, I, d I don't want to spend too much longer. Um, I've been very interested in this particular group and, and even larger, those who are working in the helping professions. Um, did you know 
it's a risk factor. And I know that's not only for physicians, but also like other uh, professionals, like uh, dentists are actually a pretty popularly known one, known category. Um, it is like a risk factor <laughs> of suicide to, to be a physician, to be a dentist, to be a psychologist. And, you know, all I have to do is think a little bit about what that kind of work might entail, and it's not that hard to imagine why. And on the heels of the COVID pandemic, um, that certainly hasn't gotten any better. Right, next slide. So, hopefully I've set the stage now. This can be a bit overwhelming. There's a lot involved. This is a quick infographic on a lot of the different things. Next slide. Uh, thank you, Kylie, by the way. <laughs> really appreciate that. Um, it can feel a little bit like a mountain to me. I, I like using the metaphor of um, these, these issues that we're dealing with when, when we're thinking of like societal level things that are just, they, they are literally impossible to individually move, even if you really, really want to. And you, and you want to make that your life's work. I'm speaking enough to myself, too. Um, that's impossible. So I can focus on my piece by sharing my story. It's like that, that piece of the mountain that relies a little bit also on my trust that others will you know, help me out as well. But I can focus on my piece by sharing my story. Um, which goes along with the idea of anti-stigma work around the month of May, Mental, Mental Health Awareness Month, by making the invisible visible. Mental health conditions kind of, uh, in large part by their definition, not being visible, or at least, you know, if you were just walking someone, uh, watching someone walking down the street who happened to have a mental health condition, it won't be readily apparent, probably or it won't be very likely. Also, um, anti-stigma work, uh, we know, um, can be addressed by simple exposure to those who might uh, be in those stigmatized categories. And also, as a part of it, kind of realizing that those who you may not have been aware of who've dealt with those things, or maybe even currently dealing with those things, um, are, are in those groups. So that can help create those novel associations. I'm sounding too much like a professor right now. Um, so addressing the stigma of mental health conditions is recognized as a key way to affect systemic and cultural change. So therefore, I'm willing to do this. <laughs> um, next slide. So as I've been mentioning several times, this is a little bit difficult. Um, and I'm wondering, Kylie, can you see if the next thing is the video? Okay, all right, not yet, not yet. I, I want to make sure that I, that I set, it, set it up. I just want to make sure that I, I knew that. So showing up can be a bit difficult. And it's weird, too, because when we're talking about addressing mental health stigma, some of you are very, very, very intimately aware of this. As maybe this is speaking to some of you. It's tough to show up especially if things like anxieties are a part of it. It like goes against the idea of to address the stigma you show up and that that's literally what it's about. So hopefully showing that 
we can do hard things can be, can be a helpful thing too. Um, no matter how smart you are, I, I, I like this, um, it's not a direct quote, but something that um, Steve Hayes, he's a, a psychologist, um, a developer of acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, he was giving a talk, a TED talk at, um, I think it's called like the Davis Academy or something like that. I'm, I'm not exactly remembering it, but um, basically it's a place where like the top percentiles of the nation go and get their education. And so he was talking to some, you know, probably pretty smart people. And he was like, look, I, I, I don't care how smart you are. There are going to be times when you're going to be having thoughts that come up close to you like this, like saying, you're not lovable, life's not livable. It doesn't pick and choose, you know, whether or not you're, you know, you're at the higher echelons of society or whatever. Um, what's also ironic about this entire idea of showing up is that vulnerability is something that some, uh, some of you may be very um, familiar with from uh, maybe you've heard of Brene Brown. Um, it's a thing that can get in the way of connection, one, Yet also, ironically enough, on the other side of it, it's the birthplace of love and belonging. That hard thing is also, also the birthplace of love and belonging. That I can matter, that I can, yeah, that, that I'm worthy of love and belonging despite my stuff or maybe because of my stuff sometimes. So this kind of leads, like, as I was going through all this, and I was like, okay, so I have a history. Yeah, I can talk about it. And I, I guess to go along with the idea of vulnerability and to model that a little bit, um, I, 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 man, this is really hard. Currently, my most active fear is that I'm, you know, recognizing that, you know, my, my demographics, my, you know, kind of color, my, my message. And I'm not mentioning that to you to get any kind of extra sympathy. I want to make sure that that's really clear. But just as a way to mention what's like an active fear. That's all. That's all. So, um, to further illustrate, like, you know, what it can feel like if you have a lot of anxieties around showing up. And if you're like me, you really care and you want to help other people, which kind of goes like against that idea, right? Like, you want to show up and then also showing up is like a part of the issue. So there's kind of that, like that push and pull. Um, there was a, a song that um, some of you are aware, Bo Burnham, maybe. Um, it's not his most recent work, like uh, I think I'm calling his most recent work inside. I'm not sure if it actually is. But um, one of his um, works before that, I think it was on his... Uh, 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 sketch, uh, uh, Make Happy, I, th I think that's, that's what it's called. Uh, I think it's his last song. His last song was just like, oh my God, like that's, <laughs> that encapsulates the experience. 
Um, he begins it with, you know, kind of a humorous little, like, rant, um, talking about his problems, you know, fitting his hand inside of a Pringles can and uh, people overfilling his burrito at Chipotle. You know, the, the typical stuff that we all deal with. Big, big problems. Um, and then he gets more serious. And so I wonder if we can go ahead and show the, show the clip. At this point. Sit here and pretend like my biggest problems are Pringle cans and burritos. The truth is, my biggest oh, problems are you. I, I want to please. Add a content warning. I, I got so into it. So he, he does refer to himself as quote unquote pussy. So just to you know, make sure that that content warning is out there. Okay. Sorry. You. But I want to stay true to myself. I want to give you the night out that you deserve. But I want to say what I think and not care what you think about it. A part of me loves you. Part of me hates you. Part of me needs you. Part of me fears you. And I don't think that I can handle this right now. Handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. So that just when I first saw that, I was, hmm, I'm feeling things. Um, that encapsulated a lot of my own experience. Um, that despite how much I wanted to help people feel happy, feel good, and learn things, all all that stuff, um, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to show up sometimes. Um, so I hope that through sharing some of my story, so next slide, um, this, this will help kind of you know, move things along. And it'll just be my own little experience, my own little 
rock in that mountain, so to speak. So I'm boring. I'll do things in, in terms of like chapters. Uh, so the first chapter called Something's Not Right, uh, my obsessive compulsive review. Um, so I figured I'd just go ahead and give you just kind of a, a run through. We'll see how much time I have to like give you a few stories here and there. But just to give you the background of like what in the world could Kevin have dealt with. So probably the earliest thing that I recall is that I, I pretty clearly had what uh, some folks have described, blood injury phobia. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, if it's, you know, if you think of like extreme fear to the point of phobic reactions to needles, that's, that's the one. Um, Quick story about that is that, um, you know, that, that first experience that I had with it um, when I was like, I think I was like five or something like this, a blood draw, um, I came back home from the blood draw and, you know, I, I fainted during that, so okay. Came back, I t retold the story to my older brother and during the retelling of the story, I also fainted. Um, and then fast forward to when I was uh, 13 at Costco, um, they were showing like, uh, you know, sometimes they show like previews of movies or whatever, like on the TVs in Costco. And as I was walking through them, I was getting drawn in by one of the uh, previews of, uh, I think it was the very first X-Men movie at the time. And uh, it was a, a scene in which there was like an injection of some sort of poison to Dr. Xavier and whatnot when he put on Cerebro, I think it was. And my older brother said, hey, Kevin, I'll, I'll, you know, see you over out there over at the checkout uh, line. And I was like, all right. And I was like looking at it a little bit more. And I was noticing I was like starting to get like kind of the, like, the tunnel vision a little bit. And then um, I was like, OK, I should I should probably head back to where my brother is over there. Um, and I was doing my best to make sure I was like kind of like going towards the middle of the tunnel constantly and then just everything went black. And I wake up and, you know, I'm like, oh gosh, oh no. Um, there's this like ring of people sort of around me and they're asking me the orientation questions. Do you know who you are? Um, like what day of the week is it? That, that sort of thing. Um, and they're like, all right, he's fine. Go ahead and call back the ambulance. It's fine. Um, and so that was very embarrassing. Um, as early as five to six years old, I think that's when I really started to uh, have more actively uh, what some folks in the mental health world call passive suicidal ideation. Um, so that's involving things like, um, you know, imagining some sort of ultimate escape, but not like actively like, you know, I'm going to do this to myself. Um, so maybe things like the rapture will happen. All these pressures will just magically kind of go away. And so I, I think that that was kind of the overriding experience that I, I recall just wanting to really escape pressure. That's, that's how I felt things. Um, the next part is a little bit uncomfortable to mention, but here we go. Um, some of you might be familiar with the experience of, uh, if you're dealing with uh, pretty high levels of anxiety, um, it can affect you physically. 
and it can affect your digestive system a lot. And for me, I didn't realize it at the time because I wasn't informed of this. I wasn't taught this. I wasn't educated about this stuff. But, you know, I was just, like, dealing with things like constipation and, um, you know, holding in flatulence and that sort of thing because I was, like, really socialized by my mom that, like, that's not okay. Uh, and very, very embarrassing if that ever happened. And it just helped kind of perpetuate this it, like literally physiologically feeling all of this discomfort. It just kind of compounded all upon itself. Which I think is relevant to mention because, you know, like it's a basic thing that maybe we all, you know, deal with to varying degrees. I don't know. Panic attack. Uh, probably the first real, you know, clear experience that I can recall of that. I, I sure I had, like, you know, some other, like, you know, lesser forms of it, but, like, the clearest one I, I probably had was in eighth grade. Uh, we were ironically going through, I think it was, like, I, I went to a Christian school, by the way. Um, so in eighth grade, we were going through, like, an apologetics portion, and... Um, I, I remember, like, we were going through things that I was not familiar with. Like, they were talking about different, like, things about Dead Sea Scrolls, which I was, like, not super familiar with at the time. And, um, and then I was chosen because I was also recognized, like, oh, Kevin's a smart one. Like, go ahead and have him talk uh, for our group. And I didn't really know exactly how to, like, summarize what in the world our, our group talked about. So I can clearly tell you what a panic attack feels like because it was literally like I could not say a word. I got up and I was like trying to will myself to say something. I could not. And like literally Steve Hayes in, in another TED Talk, he like illustrates the very similar kind of experience. It's like, you know, I try to make words come out of my mouth and it, they just don't, do not come out. So all I could whisper barely to my eighth grade instructor. And thankfully, I think he kind of got a sense that something, something was not right. Um, let me kind of sit down. I can't talk. All right, next slide. The potentially more embarrassing part, but I think important to more fully kind of describe. So I think a, a large driver of my experience kind of going through mental health issues has been like carrying on this weight of, <laughs> literally weight, uh, but also just the issue of eating, ideal body image, um, fitness, being male, with something that's more stereotypically and traditionally a, a quote-unquote female thing. It's been such a bear. I, I, I can't, yeah, I, I honestly, I don't even know where to exactly begin with all of this. But I can tell you it began around high school, like in more earnest, I guess. Uh, and maybe some of the earlier physical, you know, issues of anxiety and the digestive stuff may have kind of perpetuated this a little bit too. But I do remember um, when more anorexic to bulimic things started to happen. Um, the tipping point was an interesting one. I, I remember this quite clearly. A family member 
um, made a comment about my friend group. And my friend group, by the way, were a group of females, actually. I felt more comfortable around groups of females than I did uh, males, really, because uh, I didn't really feel like it fit in to the stereotypical male, what was kind of desirable, I guess. And so um, a comment was made that, like, oh, they, they must be underfeeding themselves, maybe even bulimic. And so my, in my brain, since I really valued actually having a friend group that I felt like a fit with, I'm guessing, I used that as a you know, kind of um, rationalization of, oh, yeah, so I could go ahead and do that. And not only would it kind of address maybe some of the things that I'm dealing with, but also um, help me just understand them through, like, the experience of it a little bit better even. Um, the experience can be addicting a little bit. Um, it feels a little bit like an energy rush during uh, sometimes. And that probably helped perpetuate it a little bit too. Um, and it continued at various levels for years. And I cannot tell you, like th this is the part when I think back on it, I just like how much time, money, energy was devoted to all that's involved with that kind of experience. I mean, it's just... Yeah, so um, around college, it was, it was kind of a tough time in terms of adjusting, trying to figure out who I was, adjusting from my traditional conservative fundamentalist background, uh, figuring out who I was. Um, there were different kind of like suicidal posturing things, like uh, one at one point, you know, really kind of having the experience of if I chose, if I, if I really chose, you know, on the edge of a cliff, you know, I could take an extra step. Our dorm was actually on um, one of the most beautiful um, cliff areas um, uh, in, in San Diego called Sunset Cliffs. Um, really awesome surfing area, by the way. Um, and, you know, there's different, you know, cliffs that, that you can stand on and just kind of considering, yeah, it, it, it could happen. Um, I, I could do it. And the, the fact that I chose not to, I, I kind of took to mean, oh, you know, maybe, maybe there's, there's something to that. that um, yeah. I did stupid things like surfing during a storm. You could kind of consider that to be um, a way of like kind of suicidal posturing. Because um, that's not smart, those of you who may not be aware. <laughs> Um, during storms, the swells get really large, and I did get to the point of, um, I was excited. I actually caught, like, a 10-foot wave, which was, like, so exhilarating and fun. But also, like, when you're done with it, uh, you need to figure out where to go from there. And the swells don't stop. Like, they, 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 keep, they keep coming. And so, um, basically, uh, I got to a point where I realized, oh, there are rocks, there are shallow rocks, like, right there. And here I was, and I was doing my best to, like, you know, you, you do a move sometimes where you try to get under the waves to kind of, like, push out a little bit further. I just was not able to keep that up. 
getting tired and the rocks were right there. And I knew the very next set was going to probably hit me straight into those rocks. So you do kind of a move where you, you know, cover your head and everything. I don't know how, I don't know why, maybe divine intervention, I'm not sure. Um, the wave took me and, I don't know, somehow moved me around the rocks or whatever in some way um, onto the beach. And I didn't ask any questions and I left. Um, also, probably the thing that I, I feel most ashamed about um, was, you know, just in, in that kind of state where it's almost kind of like a, um, wanting people to hurt as much as you kind of, kind of, a, kind of a thing, um, where my stepfather, who was just a hugely positive influence for me at the time, um, kind of a healing experience through my own, like, you know, kind of background of divorced parents and, and all that, um, I was, uh, about ready to drive back home, you know, during an evening and just, um, but I was, you know, still going through all my crap. And I just didn't feel willing to make him feel assured that I was going to be safe. I wanted him to feel like it feels dangerous to be me. Uh, and I'm not, I'm just not going to promise you that, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see if I get back. And I still remember the look on his face. He was a little bit like more of a straight line, kind of realizing that, you know, I kind of, I kind of meant something. But that was not kind. What's interesting is that I didn't realize at the time my whole eating stuff kind of... Um, it kind of transitioned between anorexia, bulimia, anorexia, bulimia, and then binge eating uh, in a way that actually, um, if, if you look at the research, is, is quite well supported that I'm not the only one that like kind of, you, you can sometimes like transition. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. Um, so when I was working over at, a, ironically, a Christian camp uh, during a summer, um, I decided to power through the discomfort of, you know, eating a lot because that was one of the ways that I, I, I was coping um, and put on more weight. Now, ironically, this was kind of like maybe a beginning of feeling okay with discomfort, generally speaking. Um, so hopefully you're getting a sense. I'm not approaching this as a psychologist. My life is messy. It's not neat, it's not organized, it's not orderly. My life's, can I say, can I say the F word? Can I? Okay, that's fucking messy. At least it feels that way. When I look back at this, I'm like, I don't, I, I honestly, sometimes I wonder like, how in the world did I like successfully, success, well, a lot of quotes around that successfully make it through, I don't know, honestly. Well, I, d I do know some, some things. So maybe let's go to the next slide. One of the, I guess, I was really struggling with, okay, so there's all that, sharing my story. So, you know, what can I generally demonstrate to you as kind of like some ways in which I was kind of like transitioning out of that entire 
mess of my life, or what felt like a mess. Um, and I, I guess orienting it around the idea of basically life, like uh, as, as long as you live in every single moment, life's asking you basically questions. And this concept I, I kind of got from uh, Steve Hayes' uh, talk on psychological flexibility, how love turns pain into purpose, uh, TED Talk. So one question generally could be like, what do you want to make your life about? That can be a really important thing, at least like if, if you don't have in your mind, like, you know, what, what do you, you want to make of this? Um, I say it can be important just because it can be such an anchoring thing when life feels as tumultuous, as messy as it can be, as feelings feel so topsy-turvy all the time. Um, that, that can be a real, you know, orienting thing. So um, for me, um, kind of the whole beginnings of it, what I, what I called, like, I, I got this concept around the time when I was, like, really trying to, like, make more concerted efforts and, like, around, what was it, sophomore year of college. Um, I heard the concept of an Archimedean point, um, the idea that that's, like, it's the beginnings of the rest of, like, a philosophy, what what can what can what's like a point at which it begins, and for me, uh, which kind of fit into you know Christianity at the time and, and kind of learning it was it was love, because um, I I think I knew at the at the time uh, another thing that was kind of like troubling was just. Um, I was told by a lot of people if you didn't think the right things maybe even feel the right things. Um, you know, you might be sinning somehow or whatever. And I felt like I knew that there was, there was an issue with that, that if, if I didn't consider something that, that could be more generalizable and wasn't so focused on, like, if you, like you have to think about the right things. Um, my grandfather was kind of a healing force in my life because, you know, my, my relationship with my father was not great, especially at the time. Um, and his father's father was someone that I really admired, looked up to, a very positive person that despite, you know, I learned later is dealing constantly with chronic pain. And any of you who know the experience of chronic pain, like it doesn't set you up to be a super happy person. <laughs> You're probably going to be more frustrated um, more likely. Um, and he was like one of the most kind individuals you'd, you'd ever meet. Um, he was also very regimented about, you know, taking naps and, you know, doing, doing things that he needed to do to, do to take care of himself. Uh, one of the things that I felt like was, you know, kind of healing was getting this idea of how could I take the idea of love and make it a little bit more specific to what could I do to make something of my life is uh, to help people, okay. And then serendipitously, a little bit later, when I began tutoring, um, 
I say I lost myself, and this is something more recently that I just felt really inspired to put in because the idea of joy and doing things that really excite you can really give you a strong hint into the values that might really make you more interested in being in your life. Because I can tell you there's a long period of time where like, I, I would have liked to escape life. And I will say I still deal with those constantly, frequently. Um, and when you're in moments of, you know, kind of losing, like, you know, the sort of this, this psychological barrier between, you know, who you are and how you are with other people or with your surroundings, like maybe in nature and your surroundings or in relationship with other people. And you kind of, there's this, like, dissolving of barrier between and you're meeting and being in deep contact, recognizing what you're doing in those kinds of situations can be a real healing thing and give you a sense of, okay, so how can I get more of this? How can I do more of that? So for me, it was teaching. The other question that life, unfortunately, gives us is all the things that we would like to remove uh, unfortunately, we're, we're coming uh, to a recognition in psychology that um, there's really no such thing as being able to completely extinguish formerly had thoughts and stuff and, and feelings that you've probably had. Um, if anything, you could probably like lessen the you know, degree to which you might have them or to which they're problematic, or as I like to think of them more broadly, you can learn to have a different relationship with those. Um, I know he agrees. Um, is willing to have suicidal ideation, all my thoughts, all my feelings, all the consequences of my behaviors. Am I willing to have those as I live my life? Are you willing to let go of the things that you leaned on to survive and don't really fit now? This can be really hard, especially for those of us who are very used to previous ways of coping. Like for me with bulimia, I told you, it was very addicting. And so, do I still have urges to do that today? Yes, I do. It will never go away. I'm pretty convinced it will never completely go away. And when I started to realize that and recognize that, at first I felt very depressed. <laughs> but also, after a while, I learned, and I can live with that, one of the other things that I recognized is as I was taking more time into um, healing, um, there were some things that like, I also leaned on that was kind of scary to recognize. Ooh, if I take more time to myself in this way, it's going to take more time out of other things. So things like my school performance. One thing that I was like, constantly being showered with a lot of like, positive attention and everything. You got good grades, Kevin. I was like, one of, the, one of the few things in my life where I felt like, you know, I had more control, I could, you know, do well, and now obviously I'm, I am where I'm at. That's kind of weird to say now, but just at the time it was very, very scary to say I couldn't devote as much time as I formerly really did. 
Also, this part, which I'm, I'm only like kind of dipping my toe into this part, but honestly, it spoke to like a, a larger entire piece and a little bit makes it a little bit more fitting a church atmosphere. <laughs> um, the idea of um, my deconstruction and I guess reconstruction from there was a huge piece of me healing, basically. Um, and one of the things I had to let go was the sense of if I started to think differently about God and about how I think and how I feel with God, that I would lose my soul's fire insurance. I don't know if you ever had that metaphor given to you um, <laughs> uh, as you were you know, instructed to accept Jesus into your heart and that sort of thing. Um, but I think dipping into lamentations, trusting God can handle me doing what I needed to, to do, at least for a time, was, was also healing. And then, yeah, just feeling more comfortable being in my own body, generally speaking, I think has, has been um, another important, rather than just chasing a way to remove discomfort and that being what fills up my days. All right, next slide. Thank you. Okay, so finally, lessons learned. What are some general things? Um, one of the things that uh, general things that I, I was trying to think of more things I could just more generally share, maybe that my experience could be um, illustrative of. Thank goodness we are not our feelings and thoughts. Now, I know for some of you, maybe that's a little strange to think of, but... Um, for a moment, you can consider that, you know, if you were your constant thoughts that are running through your head or your constant feelings that you have, I mean, they would dictate you do a lot of various things constantly. And how much of a topsy-turvy life that can, that can feel like if, if one was living simply in pursuit of feeling a certain way as opposed to living um, closer to closer to one's values, and also, as you're living according to your values, being open to the feelings that come along the way. So it's not ignoring them. If I was to give you a metaphor, value-driven living is a lot like steering a sailboat toward a lighthouse. Some of you are familiar with the idea of tacking, that idea that, you know, in order to go in a straight line, straight, quote-unquote, the sailboat needs to technically do a lot of just constant turns, a little bit like this, back and forth, where it has kind of a centered point, but it's kind of going back and forth. And it's a little bit like that, where you're not technically being 100% perfect. So for those of us who like being perfect, that's unfortunate news, but also you know, kind, of a, kind of a freeing thing. The other thing is I have a capacity to grow in anything I wish to devote my time and energy towards. Um, <laughs> there's a, I, I had to bring in Bob Ross somehow, right? Um, there's this quote that he mentions, talent is a pursued interest. And I like that quote because it's recognizing that as much as I might marvel that someone else might do something, uh, if it's important to me to, to learn, I, I have capacity to do that. I'm not just who I am right now. And thank goodness I'm also not what my history 
and my mental health issues have dictated that I that I be. Um, and I'll say one of the most unexpected things that can happen on the heels of having mental health issues and when you're actually open about these things with other people who might be dealing with them is an unexpected way to connect with them more deeply than someone else could. And she was going through and is going through some real tough mental health stuff. I'll, I'll say that more generally. And when I was able to share some of my stuff, uh, she trusted me more. And our relationship became way more significant than I, 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 could, have, I could have imagined. So I asked her, you know, hey, so uh, I'm going to be sharing things. I'm like literally looking at my WhatsApp thing right now. I'm going to be sharing some things about my mental health journey and sharing some things that were helpful for me during church tomorrow. So this was yesterday. Um, anything that comes to your mind that you'd be most interested in hearing if you were listening to me talk about that. So first thing that she mentioned was how it's okay to take breaks. I've been struggling with that, and it just feels wrong, and it makes me feel very sleepy. There's a physiological part here, too, and I'm glad that she's picking up on that. And also... Um, she mentioned how it feels to be you, you know, as you're going through these things, and that people may not like it. So, you know, you might feel like you're going to close up, and it's hard to show up. So I told her that I'd go ahead and include that. She is in high school. So, you know, this is kind of like speaking maybe to, you know, younger, younger generations of folks. Um, these are not things that are just going away, but my hope is that sharing my story and my experience helps kind of move just that little piece in that mountain. And I hope also that it inspires, uh, do I have another slide after this? Okay, just, yeah, we, we can, we, we don't have to spend too much more time. Uh, okay. So the epilogue, you know, despite having these things, despite my experiences, despite thousands of hours, you know, I've trained, et cetera, devoting myself to a life of learning allows me to be more open to the discomfort involved in any kind of growth experience. Um, as Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Traveled, mentioned, um, life is difficult and kind of living with that reality. Um, I don't know, can, can be validating, I think, at least for me. Um, yeah, one more slide? Okay. So, believe it or not, this is the shortened version. I've been told constantly throughout my um, educational journey that um, I am more verbose, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, there is way more that I could say. Like, I, I literally, I just gave you little snippets. Like, there's, there's a lot more to each one of those points. Um, so it's also an opportunity, so I'm going to go ahead and open myself up. It's a little bit uncomfortable. Um, to continue with the concept of contributing to mental health awareness, so 
feel free. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make sure it's a mutually consenting process. So for me, I'll, I'll let you know whether or not I, I consent to it. Um, you can ask me if, if you want my, more of my perspective, if you're curious about any one of those pieces, because each one of those has a lot of kind of more involved. So that's pretty much it. I, yeah, thank you.